0: Well, if you have access to a Bible or some kind of electronic device, would you uh, turn with me to Matthew 17? Uh, This was a text that I intended to preach last week. I do want to say thanks to all the people that reached out to me last week. Uh, It turns out it was a battle with COVID, uh, which was uh, very weird and very awful. (laughs) But as quickly as it came on, it departed that quickly. So by Tuesday, I was feeling just fine. But uh, All of your uh, uh, notes and texts were just great to receive. So thanks for caring about me in that way. But uh, Matthew 17 is this story of the transfiguration. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. We love Rejoicing in the fact that this is God's word for us, and that we can give thanks to Him for having uh, been able to consider it. Okay, so like a year and a half ago, my wife and I had a chance to be able to go to Italy uh, with Foster and Laura Gullett and do a little bit of a tour around that whole area. And uh, for that reason, I've been getting all these articles, suggestions online since that time about people traveling through uh, uh, Italy. And I came across a, a traveler who was talking about his visit to this gorgeous cathedral. In a small little town a few miles south of Florence, I didn't get to visit it a couple of years ago, um, called Siena. And apparently there's this gorgeous cathedral, this Duomo as they call it, uh, there in the midst of it. And the the traveler said that it's amazing to go inside these things, and I can testify to this, because of the the giant columns that provide the internal support along the interior of these churches. Well, this particular column was striking because they all had these horizontal stripes around them. And he was noticing how beautiful they were. But one column had right beside it a decidedly skinnier but tall brown pole that was just kind of strapped and attached to it, about 60 feet tall. So he he sort of wondered out loud, like, hmm, wonder what that pole is all about that. Well, his guide overheard him say it. And he said, well, you don't know what that pole is, do you? He said, that pole was placed here in 1260 A.D., by Sienese soldiers. Apparently, the soldiers had won a great victory during the Battle of uh, Monteperti. Foster and Laura are cringing right now with my Italian pronunciations. And a Sienese soldier had brought this uh, Florence flag down from this flagpole and put the pole inside the Duomo so they would never forget their great military victory. Well, the traveler was reflecting on it, and he said, something changed uh, in the moment that I saw that. And he said, I began to realize that Most of the great works of art throughout Europe, you really don't fully appreciate them until you get their backstory. You know, whether it's, you know, Mona Lisa in the Louvre or whether it's the David in Florence, once you sort of dig deep and find out what was behind the creation of these great works of art, you get a much deeper, more profound sense of the history of it. And it moves you. It changes you. So, you know, think of our traveler here. He's walking through a cathedral and he thinks to himself, ha, a pole, neat. <laughs> but afterwards, once he knows the story, he's moved by it. He can almost feel the ancient history inside of it. Well, I go into this because at first glance, the story that we just read can look like one of those, just one more strange event in the already rather weird life of this Jesus character. He goes up on a mountain and he starts to glow. And after he glows, of course, who shows up? But two long dead prophets, and they're showing up for some other reason. And if you're just doing a flyby by the text, you'd be tempted to look at it and be like, huh, weird. <laughs> uh, can we just move on to a text here that has, uh, I don't know, Jesus telling us to love one another or something, something that's simpler for me to sort of fathom. But here's my thing this morning is, like so many of the stories that we've been reading here, the, the real profundity of what Jesus is saying can only be found when you start to dig deeper to dig deeper. In other words, these things that happened to Jesus would have had associations in the minds of his listeners of uh, 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 that first century that would, have had it, that would have embedded the experience deeply on their hearts. And by embedding it deeply on their hearts, it would be something they would never forget. Especially Peter, by the way, who refers to this very event in one of his letters uh, throughout the end of the New Testament. So here's what I want to do this morning. I simply want to take a look at the story first, and look at three subpoints under that story. But then I want to finish by looking at the backstory, and maybe you and I can walk away with the same impression that Peter and the rest of the apostles did. Okay, so first of all, let's start with this whole thing of the story, right? What is the actual story? What happens here? Well, three things happen, and we can begin with the first one, that there's a change in Jesus' countenance, right? Um, Again, all of a sudden, he begins to have light emitting from him. This is not light from the outside in. It's coming from him. Uh, It's probably not a soothing, rather pleasant glow either. Uh, This was something that if you looked at for too long, you were terrified by it. There's a cute little uh, reference to this in the Mark 9 passage, I think it is, where uh, the, the Mark actually records it saying, and Jesus' clothes began to turn white, whiter than anyone else could have bleached them. You see what they're wrestling for. They're trying to say, we were in the midst of this deeply penetrating glow. So what does that mean? What actually is happening to Jesus in this moment? Well, I was reminded of a, of a certain experience of, um, of raising boys uh, from a Tim Keller illustration from years ago. Uh, about what happens when you come home to your sort of eight, nine, ten year old sons, which you know I had at one time. He's all big and grown right now, but what happened is is oftentimes they want to wrestle. Fathers, do you remember this? Your kids want to wrestle. Well, you know sometimes you get down and you wrestle, but you realize very early on as a father that you kind of got to be a little careful. Because if you throw your full weight onto your child uh, at that age, you could really hurt him. So you're constantly having to restrain yourself a little bit. But you know, every now and then he would get just a, you know, your son would get a a little bit big for his britches, you know what I'm talking about? A little uh, little uppity, as it were. And so you just kind of would let it go a little bit, uh, just to let him know exactly who it is he's dealing with you, that daddy is not one to be trifled with. Well, I think that's what Jesus is doing here because Jesus is saying, look, in order for me to appear to you in the way in which you have seen and known me in the flesh has required restraint from me. I've had to hold back the glory that I possess inherently that I had with my father from before the foundations of the earth. But in this moment, I'm just going to very strategically, because it's an important time to do it, I'm just going to let it go a little bit. He just flexes a little bit and he allows his people to see what he looked like in his pre-incarnate glory and he begins to shine from it. Um, I really love these moments when Jesus does this. He does it again by the way and Brian talked about this last week uh, providentially when he was out on the boat right and all the disciples are terrified of all the waves but then Jesus asleep of course gets woken up And he looks over at the waves waves and says, you know, be still. And suddenly it's dead calm. And there's this hilarious transition where the fear that the disciples had at the waves splashing around them were nothing compared to the fear they had when they suddenly realized who they had inside the boat with them. Jesus is constantly trying to look and say, I am more than what you think that I am. I am more than who you think that I am. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus could tell those waves to settle down because like Brian said last week, he was the one that was telling them to blow in the first place. He's that much in control. But just think for a minute how mind-bending this must have been for the apostles. Man, I mean, they've seen Jesus sort of flex before. But now we started talking about all this, this death and this suffering. And for that moment, they just don't have any categories to put, on the one hand, someone who possesses this kinds of power, but also is going to be subjected to execution and torture and death. How do you put those together? And let's be honest, you and I don't know how to put those two things together either, do we? But here's what Jesus's point is: I am the king who's coming to serve. I'm the commander who's coming to fight for my soldiers. And in this moment, I'm going to show you who it is you actually have on your side. Hence the change in his countenance. Secondly, though, into this story, you also see a change in the company, right? (laughs) Because this is where it's downright weird. Suddenly, two Old Testament prophets just mysteriously show up. Um, The text does not tell us how it is that Peter knew that it was these two, but it doesn't matter. The question is why? Why Moses and Elijah? And honestly, there's a fairly easy theological answer to that question. Moses and Elijah would have referred to the way in which people would have referred to the Old Testament scriptures. Remember how Jesus in a couple occasions will say, well, you know that it's written in Moses and the prophets, right? So Moses and the prophets by the head prophet, Elijah, for whom we have the most uh, at least uh, uh, material from in the Old Testament, these are representatives of that. So it's as if the Old Testament is coming and bearing witness to who Jesus is. Well, uh, my my friend Ligon Duncan, president of Reformed Seminary, was one of the first people to get me thinking about this passage in some little bit of different ways. And he made the point that if you actually go back to the lives of Moses and Elijah, you're going to find that if you really track their life prior to their death, you will find That it would be very easy. You could not be blamed for thinking that these two men had died as professional failures, literally professional failures. Take Moses, for instance. You got a guy who was raised in royalty. Uh, He was uh, brought, uh, called to ministry by a literal burning bush. He performs these amazing miracles so that he releases his people from the strongest nation on earth at that time. Later on, he goes to a mountain where God magically manifests himself. And by the way, having met with God, he begins to glow himself interesting enough. Uh, He even sees, even as God places him in a cleft of a rock, he sort of sees God's uh, hindquarters, whatever that means. But still, a little bit later, Moses, uh, instead of speaking to a particular rock when the people needed water, he strikes the rock. And God says, yeah, you're not going to the promised land for that. You're like, what? Why in the world (laughs) would you exercise something that cruel to someone who had served you so faithfully? I love quoting that uh, wonderful little quote from St. Teresa of Avila when she says, Dear Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder that you have so few. <laughs> in other words, so Ligon goes on to explain that the same thing could be said for Elijah after his whole prophets of Baal incident. So, so you have these, these paragons of Old Testament revelation who die without ever attaining what they sought to gain by their service in their faithful service to the Lord. Here's what Ligon says. That's not the last time you hear from these men because here they are on the mountain of transfiguration appearing as if to say, my entire ministry was not about getting the children of Israel to the promised land. That's not what it was about because the land flowing with milk and honey was just a signpost pointing to something. It was pointing to what we find in the face of Jesus. I realize we could spend a whole lot of time with this. How much do we oftentimes feel that my efforts to serve God, to do the right thing, to raise a family, to try to be faithful at a workplace that doesn't respect me? And we look and we get to the end of our lives and you look back and say, I've just got a lot of regret. I didn't do it right. I never saw anything really that, that fixed it, that changed it, that moved the ball forward. And Jesus is saying to because that's not the point. My point is I am weaving history to create what I believe should be here. And everything that we are doing is to terminate finally on seeing me. That, I think, is the reason why Moses and Elijah show up. It's as if they're saying, don't ever read the Old Testament again without finding its termination in who Jesus of Nazareth was. That's what, that's what these apostles would have walked away with and saying, if these two paragons of Old Testament history are coming back and bearing witness to the deity of Jesus, then we need to do the exact same thing with everything that they said in the Old Testament. Marks a point, doesn't it? And well, that brings me to the third point, And that is the third thing that happens in the story is there is this cloud. <laughs> this is the Shekinah glory cloud that's coming down, right? And you've seen this a zillion times. I'm not even going to go through all the times you saw it. It was the pillar of cloud during day but a pillar of fire at night in Exodus 13 when God led the people of Israel through. It was the cloud that descended over the tabernacle in Exodus 40 when Moses is trying to get it all set up. You actually find it later on in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 when Solomon is dedicating the great temple so that the people can't get in. It symbolically rises over the Ark of the Covenant in in the prophecy of Ezekiel. By the way, a couple months after the passage we have for us today, Jesus is going to depart this earth in Acts chapter 1 in the ascension in the cloud, right? And here's the deal. So that when the apostles see this, when the three of the disciples see this, the clouds show up, they're absolutely terrified because they know their Bibles. They know that when the cloud typically showed up, it was fatal for the people that saw it. This is the last thing that you saw before you died when you saw these things. And so what you have going on in these disciples in their fear of this great Shekinah glory coming down is all of their spiritual accounts being called, right? All of their deeds are open to them. All of their faults are exposed in this moment, and they're facing a death sentence at that, which is why they fall on their faces. They fall on their faces as if they're dead in verse 6. Now what does Jesus say? They look up, and all of a sudden, everybody's gone. The cloud's gone, Moses and Elijah are gone, and it's just Jesus looking them in the face and saying, hey, rise and stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, why is he saying that? Because he knows <laughs> that he is going to be the one who is going to absorb in just a few weeks after this experience happens. I am going to absorb all of the wrath that that cloud has in it that you would otherwise have to be afraid of. So rise, have no fear. Death can't hurt you anymore because of what I'm coming to do. Fear is banished at my command, is what he's saying. Okay, so you see that. There's three elements of that story. Now, let me tell you, every time that I've preached this passage in the past, I've ended right there. And frankly, I think it's a sermon that stands alone by itself. But it leads me to, to want to do something more because I still think that Jesus' banishment of our fear Deserves a little more development. And there is more development in this because of what you see embedded in this text, which is what I'm talking about when I want to talk about the backstory of this particular story. And honestly, I think when you start to realize what some of these little elements in here mean, you'll realize that the transfiguration is a huge moment in Jesus' ministry. Absolutely huge. But we got to do some digging, okay? So buckle up for a second as we dive into this. All right. The backstory begins in the location of the miracle. Verse 1 says very clearly that they were led up to a high mountain. I, just to lay all my cards on the table, I have come to believe, and actually as it turns out, more and more Old Testament scholars are coming to believe, that the specific mountain on which this happened is the thing that makes the story the most vivid. Bear with me. The mountain is, now, but i got to admit fa- to this fact, church tradition originating from one of our early church fathers, a guy by the name of Origen, who had a whole lot of other stuff going on with him, speculated, and it was absolute speculation, by the way, that Jesus had risen up onto Mount Tabor, Okay, Uh, a sort of rise in northern Galilee that would have been right on the border between the southern and northern kingdoms. But again, more and more scholars are challenging that assumption by explaining that it would have been much more likely that Jesus was climbing a mountain called Mount Hermon. Now, why did they think that? Well, again, this is more than you want to know, but if you go back to Jesus' conversation about his true identity in chapter 16, verse verse, uh, 13, I think it was, it says that this conversation all happened in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, that probably means nothing to you, but you need to realize that Caesarea Philippi was a city that was located at the base of Mount Hermon up in northern Galilee. So, Scholars are saying it makes much more sense for Jesus to have done this act of transfiguration up on Mount Hermon in that place. Now, again, that doesn't mean anything to you, but I promise you, that's where this gets really interesting. Um, Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias, you can dig through and find all this stuff about the lore surrounding Mount Hermon. I actually found a guy who did some great summarizing on, online when he said this. He said, look, Hermon basically is this very sacred but also a very forbidden place, especially as you look at the tortured history that it had over time. When we do excavations archaeologically on Mount Hermon, uh, scientists have found some close to 20 different temple sites all surrounding the slopes of this particular mountain. So much so that it led an early church father, a guy by the name of Jerome, who was responsible for translating the Bible into Latin, the old Vulgate, of course, basically said that Mount Hermon is cursed. It is cursed because it is, an, it is inherently evil provenance. And so if you go back and you consult a couple other extra-biblical sources, there's a book in the books of the Apocrypha. We do not include the Apocryphal books in our Bible for very, very good reasons, but they can still be somewhat useful when we're studying some of the history. But there's a book of the Apocrypha known as the book of Enoch that basically says that Mount Hermon was associated with the place... Where in the Old Testament, the angels were banished in Genesis chapter 6 for having, having, having unlawful relationships with the women of earth to form that race of giants known as the Nephilim. All of those fallen angels were banished, you guessed it, to Mount Hermon. That's where they thought it was. So this commentator online said this, This mountain saw fallen angels, giants, newly minted pagan gods and goddesses, uh, flute-playing half-man, half-god goats, sensual pagan rituals, child sacrifice. It literally was a toll road between our world and the netherworld. Okay, so it reminded me of a little scene from the old, um, the old Ghostbusters movie. Do you remember the old movie where Dan Aykroyd's character is explaining to Bill Murray's character that his girlfriend uh, actually lives in a building that is known to be a haunt of ghosts? And at one point he explains to Bill Murray's character, he's like, look, your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. Well, I think Jesus has purposely taken his disciples up to the corner of Demon Street and Devil Avenue in order to reveal this about himself. He has gone up to what all of the collective fears of that generation would have had in association about Mount Hermon. turns out after Jesus, uh, prior to Jesus' time as well, Alexander the Great had built a countryside shrine to the Greek god Pan on the sides of Mount Hermon. And of course, there were these rituals they would have to entice Pan to uh, resurface that included prostitution, in some cases, child sacrifice. Well, there's a cave surrounding that particular site. Did you know what Alexander the Great referred to it as? He called it the gates of hell. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Create some context for why it is that Jesus looks at Peter and says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You see that? In other words, they're in of Philippi, and he's referring to an actual place that existed during that time under Alexander the Great. Look, I'm hoping you're seeing the backstory here because Jesus is trying to help his disciples put together this life of suffering that he has called them to experience, and so he marches them up to Spook Central So that he can say, look, I am going to show myself in front of every evil power that you think that I'm dealing with. So much so that when Jesus actually shows that great triumph here and completes it on the cross and solidifies it and ratifies it in his resurrection, all of the apostles pick up on this. Most especially are people like Paul. Go to Colossians chapter 2 where Paul describes the effects of the cross in this way. It says Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in him. In other words, all of these apostles said, yes, there has been salvation won for God's people, but it's also been won over the powers that threaten to undo you every single day. And all of the idolatries that we conjure up in our own hearts every single day. Look, I simply want to draw attention to this fact that Jesus conquers the powers of evil in this moment. He's showing off. He's letting them know exactly who they're dealing with and letting his disciples see. But here's what's crazy. Jesus is also giving his disciples a vision of their ultimate destiny. I actually was having this conversation with my middle daughter just yesterday. So Caroline, if you're tuning in, this is just what we were talking about. Because these early disciples understood that if Jesus had come to do what he was as their covenant head, it meant it was what they were in store for. Jesus begins to glow in beautiful, radiating, fearful glory. And they began to see, you know what, that's actually, we are now being formed into the likeness of Jesus. That is our destiny to glow as Jesus did. Don't believe me? Check places like 1 Corinthians 3.18. This is what Paul says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That word there is metamorphed. It's the exact same word we have in verse 2 of Matthew 17. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. I mean, that's, that is really cool because Paul looks and says, if this happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. This is what we're in for. In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, all 12 of you, you apostles, you're going to go out and you're going to fight for this kingdom that I'm bringing. And it's going to be a struggle and it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. And many of you are going to suffer. And a lot of you are going to be killed and you're going to die. And you're going to be tempted like Moses and Elijah to look back and be like, what a waste of my life. But let me show you what you are in for when the whole story is done. I've told this story before that, that I, um, I am un, um, I'm unsatisfied when I look back in my personal history with my particular dating life when I was in um, uh, high school and college uh, and a little bit outside of college as well. Um, I I just I I was not I was not responsible but I oftentimes think to myself I wish I could go back and whisper in my ear I don't know sometime around what your sophomore year in high school hey Les there's someone that's like Ginger Hubbard that's waiting for you (laughs) I just kind of feel like I would have been a little more patient I would have been a little smarter I would have made better decisions had I known that there was that kind of beauty waiting for me on the other side I've imagined it this way, and this is kind of a takeoff on the C.S. Lewis illustration. Imagine going up to a little child, and you want to take him to Disneyland. But you know what? He's never been to Disneyland. Kid's actually never even heard of Disneyland. Maybe he's too poor to ever having even seen a Disney movie. He has no idea what Disneyland is. And here he is in his own backyard playing in a mud puddle. You walk into that child, and you're like, hey, I want to take you someplace that you're not going to believe. And the child's like, yeah, 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 great. It's called Disneyland. He's like, oh, okay, Cool. It's got rides, it's got Space Mountain, uh, it's got all these amazing features, this thing called Epcot, I'm going to take you to the Magic Castle. Kid's like, uh-huh, 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 yeah. I'm cool in the mud puddle, right? I'm going to stay here because it's just fine for me. I think you would get to a point where you would say to yourself, "Uh, oh, you know what? Hey, just hold tight, will you? <laughs> You'll see when you get there. Honestly, it's too wonderful right now for you to even wrap your mind around So do me a favor, just be patient, just be patient. Look, I think that's the call of this text on us this morning because how different would we be if we believed that we had the glorious future that Jesus is is vividly presenting his apostles in the transfiguration? How different would we be? How much would it change my sense of anticipation about the future? How is it that I can fully grasp what it is that happens when the cloud descends and the voice of God speaks. Because again, it's not just that we will turn out to be glowing eternal figures, which is exactly what we're headed for, which is, would be good enough as it is. But the better part of it is what the Father says to Jesus. Look, if we're going to be transformed into Jesus' glory, it also means that we're going to be spoken to in the same way that the Father speaks to His Son. I love mentioning the fact that if you go through the New Testament, there really are only about two times when God the Father gets uh, speaking parts. And in both times, you know what he's doing? He's bragging on his son. He's doting over him. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. I'm so pleased with him. There's a whole sense in which we can make a whole sermon out of wondering how much of my life can be outlined by wondering whether I'm going to hear that voice or not about whether or not there's actually going to be a moment when Jesus looks and says, you are my son. When God the Father looks at me and says, you are my son, and I am so pleased with you. Well, this morning, if you're in Christ, that's what you have waiting for you. That's where our destiny ends. And wouldn't that change us today if we really believed that? I think it would. Let's pray to such an end. Lord Jesus, I hope that you give us the grace to be able to wrap our minds around that so that we might know and have a full taste of what it means to know that you are good and that you have loved us. And so, Father, give us the grace to apprehend these things, even, Father, as we sit in our homes, perhaps on a phone, on a computer, our televisions, however we view in and tune in this morning. We pray that you would give us the grace uh, to really appropriate it, to think through it, to live it, maybe to see tomorrow a little bit differently than we did before we considered it. Would you give us that blessing? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.